right, good evening, RPYA family. Can we go ahead and give the band a nice round of applause? They worked so hard all day to bring us a quality music that, you know, invites us into God's presence. And, and tonight, you're going to get as much as you put into it. So I'm just going to invite you to make sure you have your Bibles out and you turn on your listening ears. I mean, I've been talking to children, obviously, right? Um, turn on your, put on your thinking caps. Uh, yeah, because I, I think tonight you're going to get a lot out of it. In fact, people pay lots of money per unit to hear the guy that you're going to hear from today. He is a Fuller Seminary professor, and that's not cheap, right? And, you know, any college students in the house, right? You pay top dollar to get the best education from world-renowned uh, professors, even at Park College, even at CSUN, even at Grand Canyon. Uh, but tonight, we are bringing you someone from Fuller Seminary. But before I even get into this man who I literally look up to intellectually, uh, because I'm taller than him, um, uh, we are actually technically in week two of our series called Bystander. You may not know, why is it called Bystander? Well, because we are going to take a look at somebody who was a bystander at the signs and life and legacy of Jesus Christ, both death, burial, and resurrection. His name is John. And the reason why I call John a bystander is because I've been in a lot of car accidents. And um, whenever you're in a car accident and you're with a friend or whatever, they, the insurance company calls you because you are a bystander. You're an eyewitness to what had happened. And the interesting thing about the book of John, and maybe the interesting thing about Christianity that you did not know, is that it's not necessarily, nobody here is asking you to believe in Jesus because of faith. John doesn't actually ask you to believe in Jesus because of faith. The reason why John asks you to believe is because he saw it happen, right? He was a bystander, an eyewitness to the account. And if you look at John chapter 20, verse 30, he tells you why he wrote this book and why you should believe. He says, you should believe because I saw it. That's the Kelly translation, right? So if you look at John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, I've written these things so that you may believe. See, this is a man who walked and lived with Jesus and watched it all happen. And there are seven reasons that John gives us to believe. See, last week I was going to talk about that first reason, which was a sign, not just a miracle, because John doesn't call these miracles miracles. He calls them signs, even though they were very miraculous. And signs in themselves don't have any power unless they point to something, right? Like the, unless you do something about it, right? So there's a sign, right? It said, like when you drive, it says 55 miles an hour. And now the sign in itself has no power unless you do something about it, right? That's when I let up off the gas, you know, or I speed up. You know, I do something about it because those signs tell me, indicate that something needs to change in my life. Now, John points out seven signs, and I talked about the first one. Um, well, actually, I will talk about the first one. We're going to go a little bit out of order because we're going to start on week two because there was a, a wind tsunami last week. Uh, but this week, we're going to start on sign number duh. Is that French? Is that right? Duh. 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 
dos, I can do Spanish, sign number dos, um, but in two weeks, I will talk about sign number one, which was turning water into wine, right? The first sign is water into wine. It's the only one that rhymes, okay? And so, but today we're going to look at sign number two. Now, with that in mind, without any further ado, you understand why it's called bystander, because John is a bystander. There are seven signs that point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that you may believe, and, and therefore, you will live a life of faith. Uh, but now, we are ready to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Professor Christopher Wozniki. Get it, dog. Get it. Yeah, right. To the left. All right. Um, how's everybody doing tonight? Good. Awesome. So, uh, as Kelly said, uh, my name is Chris Wozniki, and uh, yeah, I'm glad to, to be here with you guys tonight. So, um, my there should be a picture coming up right now. Uh, my youngest daughter, she turned one. Uh, there she is. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and being a dad, you know, is, is, is a really cool thing. Um, there's this, like, magical sort of transformation that happens uh, when you become a parent. Um, you become, like, more caring, more sensitive, uh, paternal instincts kick in, all that sort of mushy stuff, right? Um, that's all true, right? All that stuff happens. But the most important thing that happens when you become a father is that all of a sudden, from, like, the inner depths of your being, something that's been in there the whole time that I think God implanted into men um, just lying dormant emerges, and that is you start just spewing out dad jokes, right? Um, and it's like there's endless supply too. Like I don't know where they come from. Like I think God just put it in our in our hearts as an instinct, and um, they just come second nature. Like so, here's one, right? Uh, what do you call uh, a waffle that falls into the sand? San Diego. Huh? All right, you guys are not. Uh, Appreciating that. Uh, all right. Uh, what about this one? Um, a guy, a guy, gave his friend ten puns, hoping that one would make him laugh. Sadly, no pun intended. Yeah. Think about it. Um, how about this? Uh, why can't a nose be twelve inches long? Because then it would be a foot. Yeah, it would be a foot. Uh, and then, sort of the ultimate dad joke. Um, when does a joke become a dad joke? When the punchline becomes apparent. There you go. All right, so a bunch of dad jokes right there. Um, but really, being a dad is not all fun and games. Uh, it's not all fun and jokes. Um, you know, there's poop. There's spit up. There's crying. And that's just you as a parent. Um, it's not even the kid. Um, just kidding. Like, it's the babies, right? My four-year-old always says about our, our, our one-year-old, all she does is poop and cry, poop and cry, poop and cry. It's like a saying in our house. Um, but really, like, there's an actual change that happens when you become a parent. And I don't know how to explain it, but it's there. It's like all of a sudden this other little human being, um, there's this, like, new connection that's formed. Like, all of a sudden this other human being becomes, like, a part of your life. Not just, like, they're in your life, but they kind of become a part of who you are. Um, and what happens to them, in some sense, sort of happens to you. Um, you know, that sometimes that leads to just times of joy, um, like seeing my older daughter grow up and go to preschool and all that stuff. It's just really moments of joy. But then sometimes it leads to moments of pain, um, like this little one, Abby. I felt that with her in a pretty intense way. 
Um, see, my oldest, who's four, she came about a month early. And um, the doctor said that because she came early, it might be the case that our second one, when we have one, would come early too. So the doctors, like, they took precautions. They gave us some guidelines and stuff um, to help make sure that that, that didn't happen. But um, two months before Abby is due, uh, my wife tells me that she's not feeling great. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean you're not feeling great? And she's like, I'm, I, I feel like I'm going into labor. And I'm like, no, 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 like, you're, just, you're a few months out from the due date. You are not in labor. You must be confused. Um, she's like, no, like, I know my body. Like, I'm going into labor. And, and that moment when I was like, okay, she's not just, like, saying this. Like, this actually happened. My heart um, just sunk because it's, like, two months. Like, that is a crazy amount of time. It's early. Um, so I'm like, okay, let's, let's relax. Let's calm down. We don't want to add any stress. Um, let's just go to the hospital and meet Shiloh. Um, who was about three at the time, uh, and my wife, Amelia, we go to Kaiser, and they take her in, and Shiloh and I are just sitting there, just waiting, um, trying to be calm, because we don't want to freak her out, and I'm just freaking out on the inside, like, this is too early, like, there's going to be complications if she comes, like, is she going to be okay, is she, like, fully formed yet, like, what if we lose the baby, and at this point, we didn't even know if it was her, like, for both of our kids, we just let it be a surprise and found out the day they arrived, um, but in my mind, I'm like, no, like, Lord, you need to intervene. Like, you need to do something about this. And, yeah, it's just like you need to save my child. All while I'm, like, sitting in the cafeteria eating ice cream with my three-year-old. Um, and so we go back upstairs, right, um, from the cafeteria. And the midwife is like, yeah, she's, she's going into labor. Um, we're going to try to delay this as much as possible. And at that moment, like, all the emotions, fear, anguish, just gut-wrenching desperation. Like, I have no idea what to do. I can't do anything about this. Like, all those things started to fill uh, my heart. And I just send out texts asking friends to pray. Um, and if you know me, um, I don't normally do that, not because, like, I don't believe in the power of prayer, but because I just don't like to bother people with prayer requests. Um, it's probably something... I need to be introspective about and sort of examine why I don't like to bother people with prayer requests, but it is what it is. So um, in, uh, in, in, in prayer and in the providence of God um, and his guidance to the doctors, um, it, all, it all ended up working out. Um, she still came uh, a month early, uh, but thankfully, um, yeah, she's, she's a little one, but she's, uh, she's healthy and she loves climbing things. That's like her favorite thing to do. Like she can climb anything even though she can't walk yet. Um, but tonight I bring up this story because we're going to look at a story in the Gospel of John where we get a picture of this dad, this other father, who has the same sort of desperation and fear about uh, their own son, their own child. So uh, let me go ahead and pray and we'll go ahead and get started. Father God, I uh, just thank you that you give us your word. God, I thank you that um, you speak to us through your word that you, um, you love to reveal who Jesus is through your word. So I pray that tonight um, we would learn a little bit more about what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. Um, I pray that you would uh, speak to us directly um, and just have whatever you want to say. Lord, we are open to that tonight. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So it's like opening a pickle jar super tight. All right, um, have you ever had Krispy Kreme, right? All right, cool. Um, like, I don't know what's greater proof of, of God's love for humanity, um, just 
hot, freshly made Krispy Kreme donuts or Chick-fil-A? Like, I don't know. Like, wh which one's greater proof? Anybody have an opinion? Chick-fil-A, Krispy Kreme. Yeah. Um, so both of these places have signs, which uh, is up there, right? Um, and these signs can either just, like, lift your spirits, right? Or they can just absolutely crush you. You know, you're driving late at night, that red uh, Krispy Kreme, hot now sign is on. This is like a beacon of hope. Just draws you in. Um, on the other hand, driving to lunch after church, pulling a Chick-fil-A, you see that sign that you forgot, right? Closed on Sundays. I don't know why it's called the Lord's Day if it's closed on Sundays. Um, but either way, like these signs, right? They can either bring hope or devastation uh, because you want the thing that the sign points to, right? You could really care less about the sign itself. Like you want the thing that the sign actually points to. Uh, and after all, that's what signs are all about, right? They point to something. And this week, as Kelly said, we're kicking off a series in the book of John where we're looking at these different signs um, that point to who Jesus is. Now, the Gospel of John uh, has seven signs. Uh, they're all meant to show how, who Jesus is. And tonight, we're looking at sign number two. Um, sign number one, as Kelly said, is a miracle of Jesus turning uh, water into Welch's. And um, best grape juice you've ever had. No, just kidding. It's actually wine. Um, so I'll let Kelly talk about that one. But if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to John, uh, John chapter 4, verse 43. So a little bit of context of where this is at in the, the book of John. Um, right before this story, Jesus had spent some time up in Samaria, uh, which uh, if you're sort of familiar, you've been around church for a while, you know, like Samaritans and Jews, they didn't get along. Um, so pretty much for all intents and purposes, it was kind of like a foreign land. Uh, but Jesus is over there, and um, what's interesting is that they respond to Jesus, like, really well, right? A bunch of Samaritans start coming to genuine faith in Jesus. And then we see in John chapter 4, verse 43, what happens. And it says this. After two days, he, Jesus, uh, left for Galilee. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So his homeland is born in Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, okay? So Jesus said, prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for, he, for they had also been there. Um, so this is a little bit of a puzzle, right? He says a, a prophet has no honor in his home country, Yet Jesus is back in his homeland, right? He was from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, which is located in Galilee. But it says that they welcomed him, um, which is really weird. So what's going on here? Um, well, the key is actually the next line. It says that they had seen all that he had done during the Passover. Right? So what does that mean? Well, it means that they're welcoming him for what he's done. Right? They're welcoming him for what he's done not for who he actually is. Um, so they're welcoming him for his powers. They're welcoming him for his miracles. They don't actually care about him himself and like what he claims to be and who he is. They just want something from him. Um, so this is kind of like uh, just like pretty much any sort of rom-com. You know, you're going to see a lot of those coming up right now on the Hallmark Channel, a bunch of Christmas rom-coms. Um, where like there's like this prince or this like really rich dude, right? And he falls in love with this girl. Um, but he doesn't want her to fall in love with him for, like, his money or 
his kingdom or whatever, right? So he pretends that he's this nobody. Um, that way, she'll love him for his true self, right? And that's not what's going on here, right? They don't love Jesus for his true self. They love him for what he has to offer. Um, verse 46, it says this. Oh, page is blue. All right. Uh, page four, verse 46 says this. It says, once more, he had visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. So a throwback to week one of this series, which will probably be week three or week four. Um, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. All right, so this takes us back to the first miracle. Uh, Jesus goes to this wedding uh, of some couple. He's uh, His mom's plus one. And uh, the party is running out of wine. And that would have been super problematic for the couple. Uh, and his mom asks him to fix this problem. So Jesus asks some servants to go and fill these jugs uh, with water. They come back, pour the jugs out. It's wine. It's like really good wine. And um, one thing that people don't tend to notice when they read this story in John chapter 2 is that nobody really knows about the miracle. Um, it's not like all of the party was like, whoa, Jesus did this cool thing. Um, no, the only people who are actually in on it are Mary and the servants. So go back and, and look at that, and you'll, you'll notice that it's, uh, those are the only ones who, who see it at that moment. But you got to know, like, word goes around, right? Like, after that evening, like, the servants are talking to their friends, the servants at the other houses, um, you know, and they're just talking about how, like, crazy it is that this guy did this thing, and all of Cana is a buzz because of this wet because of this wedding, uh, and two senses literally like a buzz because of uh, the wine, um, and also because of the rumors like going around like this guy Jesus who we knew from like Nazareth that we all grew up with like he did this crazy thing, um, so he finds himself back in this town in Cana, and there's this guy who is a royal official, uh, probably worked for King Herod Antipas, um, probably had a big house, a lot of money, a lot of power, influence but his kid is sick. And, you know, like having money, having power, having influence is not going to do anything about that. And his kid's been sick for days. And his kid's getting worse and worse and worse. And his fever's spiking. And it's just not looking good, right? Like the son looks like he's on his way out. And the official feels completely powerless. And you can kind of picture like the servants in the next room, right? They're talking like, oh, yeah, like I remember... Um, servant from the other house down the street at the wedding. Like, they said, this Jesus guy has powers. Remember the water and the wine thing? Like, I wonder if he could, like, actually do something about this little boy, about, about the son. Um, so they, like, go in. They tell, tell this official, and the official's like, okay, yeah, like, I'm going to go see Jesus. Like, this is my last resort. I have no other hope. Like, there's nothing else that I can do. And um, you know his heart is, like, full of anguish the whole way. Um, the distance, like, it depends on where you think this happened, right? Did it happen at Cana? Did it happen at Capernaum? Uh, either way, like, he's on the road, and, you know, his heart is just sort of like, I hope this Jesus guy can do something, right? Just full of anguish thinking about that. Um, and he gets to Jesus, right? And he falls at Jesus' feet. And you know this guy is desperate and in need because he falls at Jesus' feet. This guy who is a royal official, you know, this really powerful man, just gets down on his knees and begs Jesus to help him. He's like, my son, he's dying. Like, Jesus, come. How does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say to this guy? Is he like, right away, like, let's go. Like, tell me where he is. Like, we need to go see him. 
Or does he, like, just stoop down with him while he's on the floor and just, like, wrap his arms around him and, and just comfort him? Um, no, Jesus doesn't do any of that. Right? Jesus basically says, no, I'm not coming, which is totally weird. Like, you don't expect Jesus to say that, right? But that's exactly what happens. Uh, verse 48, it says, unless you people see miraculous signs. So this is how he responds to him, right? He's, uh, he's begging on his knees. And Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Like, you people. Like, what do you mean, you people? Right? Jesus actually takes this moment, right, to, to show something to everybody in the crowd, but also to him um, about faith. He takes this moment to show this man something about faith. And the point is this. Um, and if you're taking notes, it's that shallow faith is not enough. Shallow faith is not enough. And, um, you know, I was going to try to make, like, all these points start with a C because, like, pay thousands of dollars to go to seminary to learn how to do that. Um, but it didn't work out. Like, if you want to put in another word, uh, cursory is a decent synonym for um, sort of what I mean, but um, it just doesn't work. So uh, so shallow faith, right? Um, so we, we need to stop ourselves here um, and ask ourselves, like, why are the crowds following Jesus? Right? Verse 45, it says that they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem. Um, but that's not, like, the only clue. Actually, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, uh, it says this. It says, now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Um, so Jesus knows that, like, these people are just believing in him because of what he can do for them, right? Um, he knows that they don't trust him because he's the Messiah. He knows that they don't trust him because he's their Savior, because he's their Lord, um, they just want what he has to give them. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, once said, uh, God is not in the business of doing parlor tricks, right? So he's, uh, he's not there to put, a, put on a show, right? Jesus isn't here to put on a show. Jesus isn't here to entertain us uh, with some sort of wow factor or some, like, crazy sign or crazy miracle that's just going to, like, blow, blow our minds. And, like, whoa, that's super cool. Like, that's not what Jesus is all about. But that's what the crowds are there for. That's what they want. They wanted to show. They wanted to see what's the next big miracle that Jesus is going to do. And if you think, like, that's kind of messed up. Like, this is Jesus. Like, he's God. Like, why would he put on a show for them? Like, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, that's not the way to treat God. Um, we know better than that. But if you think about it, so much of Christianity is sort of consumer-driven, right? In our day, um, yeah, there's, like, obviously, like, really bad examples of that. You think of, like, Prosperity Gospel. They're like, send us 100 bucks to uh, Name It and Claim It Ministries Incorporated, and uh, you'll get your miracle. Um, but it's just not that, right? It's, that's, like, super extreme examples of that. Um, but how often do we come, like, seeking some sort of, like, mystical sort of experience of worship, right? And if we don't have it, it's like, well, yeah, worship is fine. Like, same old, same old. Um, didn't really hit me this time. Walk away disappointed. Or, like, come to God just to have him fix a problem for us. Or you show up to church and um, complaining that, like, the lighting was off or you couldn't see the screen or uh, the sound was slightly off this week. Right? Or it's too cold to sit outside, which luckily it's not too cold tonight. Um, or the environment isn't right. Or you come to, to, to God in our prayer life, right, just wanting something from him 
rather than wanting himself. Right? Now, it doesn't mean like if you trust in Jesus because of something he did, like an answered prayer or maybe a miracle or maybe this like really amazing encounter in worship. Right? That doesn't mean that your faith is shallow. Like That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, just because you came to Jesus through these things doesn't mean your faith is like shallow or cursory or sketchy. Um, synonyms go on and on. Um, but does your faith end there? Right? Like That's the question. Does your faith end there with those things? Right? Would your faith still hold if God didn't answer that prayer? Right? Would your faith still hold without that miracle? Would your faith still hold without that worship experience, that encounter with God? Um, these things, miracles, the experiences, the signs, all that sort of stuff, right? Those are supposed to be signs, right? And signs are supposed to point to something else, right? The signs aren't the thing itself. They're not the object that we're after, right? They point us to the object that we're after. The red crisp, uh, hot now sign points us to the donuts, right? It's not all about the sign. It's about the donuts, right? And if your faith is in the signs, right? If you're seeking the signs instead of the one that the signs actually point to, Right, then your faith is shallow. Um, but Jesus doesn't want to leave you there. Right? That's, that's not where Jesus wants you to end up. Right? And that's why he gives this guy what seems like a really harsh answer. Because, I mean, truth be told, like, it seems like a harsh answer. But he's refusing to show up in order to give this guy an opportunity. An opportunity to go from a shallow faith to a deep faith. From a faith that's grounded in signs to a faith that points the one the signs are about. So um, let's keep reading. Verse 48 it says this. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Then the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. So this is what he, uh, he tells this guy. Like, he doesn't say, like, oh, I need you to do something for me. Uh, I don't need, like, I need you to come right now. And Jesus basically responds to him, like, I'm not coming. But the guy then gets down, and he says, like, oh, like, come on, Jesus. Like, please, I need your help. And Jesus says to him in verse 50, this wind is terrible. All right, verse 50, um, he says to him, you may go. Your son will live. All right, so what proof does this guy have that what Jesus said is actually going to happen? Like, does he have proof? Like, Kelly talked about, like, evidence, right? Does this guy have proof? He doesn't. Right? All he has is a promise. He doesn't have any evidence, like, but he has a promise. Um, does that mean his faith was blind, though, just because he's going off of a promise? Well, it doesn't. Um, it doesn't mean that it's blind, right? Because he has a promise. Like, he trusts Jesus at his words, right? And what sustains this man's faith in the moment of crisis is actually a promise from Jesus. It's God's word. So you can imagine this guy walking back home, thinking, like he's walking back home, right, thinking to himself, like, is my son going to be all right? Yeah, I hope he's going to be all right. No, like, don't, don't think like that. Jesus promised, right? Jesus promised me he's going to be fine. It's like over and over, just repeating these words, this promise from Jesus, your son will live, your son will live, your son will live. Right, repeating that promise to himself, just putting it deep into his heart, my son will live. And what this shows us is actually something about faith. It shows us that faith is grounded in God's promises. It's grounded in God's promises. Martin Luther, a uh, famous reformer, German reformer, um, he said that the highest worship 
is clinging to God's promises. Highest form of worship is clinging to God's promises. Now, faith clings to God's promises. Confident faith, if you're taking notes, trusts God's word. And God's word is full of promises, right? He promises to be with us. He promises not to leave us, not to forsake us, uh, to be our strength, to be our peace. He makes all kinds of promises. But then there's all kinds of things he doesn't actually promise. Like, doesn't promise to make you successful. Doesn't promise to make you wealthy. Doesn't promise that you won't experience suffering and pain. Right? Doesn't promise that life is going to be easy. Doesn't promise that you won't get persecuted. Right? So if you're clinging to God's promises and faith, you can be confident he's going to do those things. But if you're clinging to the fact that God is going to do these other things that he hasn't promised, well, he may do them. He may not. Right? But he hasn't made any sort of promise about those kinds of things. Um, but what he does promise is to work for the good of those who love him. Uh, Romans 8, just classic uh, example of this, right? This, Romans 8 tells us this, uh, starting at verse 35. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to, to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what that means is that nothing in creation can take away the most important thing you have, which is God's love for you, right? What does that mean for the crisis that you're facing? Well, it means that in the middle of your crisis, right, God loves you. And because he loves you, he promises that he's going to do what's best for you, right? He promises that no matter what situation looks like, he's working it out so that it's for your own best. That doesn't mean that the situation is going to turn out exactly like you want it to turn out, right? It may not turn out how you expect it to turn out may not turn out how you like to turn it out, right? But what it means is that it's going to be what's best for your walk, right? It's going to be what's best for your flourishing. And a lot of us know that, right? Like, we know it up here, like, in our minds. Um, but it's a matter of, like, knowing it in our hearts. Right? So how does it go from just being this sort of blind hope, like, I hope God is going to keep his promises, to actually being confident that God keeps his promises? Well, he gives us evidence that he's going to keep his promises. You know, um, my daughter, Shiloh, um, she's figured out that the doctor is where you go to get shots. And um, because of that, the doctor is a bad place. Uh, so avoid the doctor at all costs. That's her sort of philosophy of life. And um, she knows that if we go there, it's actually going to be for her good, though, right? If we take her there, it's because we think it's important and valuable for her to actually be there. Now, she might hate it, right? it might hurt, she might think it sucks, right? But she knows because we love her and because she has evidence that we love her that we wouldn't put her through that if it actually wasn't for what's best for her, right? And why does she know that? Because of this relationship, right? Because of our relational history. She knows that we actually love her because she's experienced that love. So she can trust us 
even when it's hard for her to see why this is happening, because the past relationship and our proof of our love is actually the evidence that she's banking on when she goes to get a shot. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's still hard for her to believe that, I'm sure, right? She knows it. It's hard for her to believe it here. Um, and it's hard for us to believe that too, right, when it comes to God. Um, we can know it here all day in our heads, but is it actually going to come to our hearts um, and actually, like, convince us? Um, but we can be convinced, right? Like, and the, the thing that convinces us is God's proof of his love. And the greatest proof of his love is that he was willing to give his own son to die for us, to rescue us from our sins, to pay for that penalty we deserved. Um, that's sort of the act of love that t- tells us, like, okay, I can trust him because I know he actually loves me. He loves me to the point of giving up his own son. Right? So that's the greatest piece of evidence that we can uh, bank on when it comes to God's promises. Um, John Calvin, you, you'll notice uh, I like the reformers. Uh, he says this about faith, about confident faith. Um, should come up on the screen. So it says, Maybe it'll come up on the screen. Oh, shallow faith is not enough. And confident faith. Oh, there you go. Nope. Different. uh, That's the Bible verse. Okay, there it is. Um, He says, we shall now have a full definition of faith. If we say, so this is what it is that it's a firm and sure knowledge of divine favor towards us, right? So that means God is for you, like the Romans passage, right? It all works out for the good of those who love him. He's for you. And what is that founded on? It's founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ. What is that? Salvation that's been offered to you, right? And revealed in our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit makes that real to your heart. It takes it from your mind down to your heart. So this dude, uh, this father walks home, Right, confidence uh, with a heart full of faith. Verse 51, uh, it says this. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And you can kind of see him there. He's like doing calculations in his mind, like adding the one, carrying over the seven. And he realizes something. Verse 53, he says, Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Check that out. He and all of his household believed. So this guy's faith, it spread. Other people caught it, right? Why? It's because faith can be contagious. And contagious faith multiplies. Like it spreads all around. Uh, because this one guy exercised his faith, because this one guy trusted Jesus' promises, others came to Christ, right? The rest of his household came to Christ. There goes my notes. Um, but think about it too. People all over history have read this same story for thousands of years, right? For 2,000 years, people have been reading this story and have gotten a better glimpse of who Jesus is because this one guy actually had faith. Um, so contagious faith uh, multiplies. Uh, speaking of contagious, how many of you guys uh, know this one guy, kind of obscure probably, uh, Dr. Fauci? Speaking of contagious, all right, Dr. Fauci. So uh, Dr. Fauci, he has a boss. Uh, his name is Francis Collins. And Francis Collins is 
one of the smartest guys, one of the smartest human beings alive. Um, he's the head of the NIH, National Institutes of Health. Um, he's the guy who was in charge of the Human Genome Project. So genomes, uh, if you remember from high school biology, um, that's basically like the entire map of like all of your DNA um, that makes you what you are as a human being. Um, so he was in charge of mapping out all of DNA, all of like 3.1 billion sort of like strands or like letters of code or whatever it is. Uh, I'm not a biologist, I'm a theologian. Um, so this guy, one of the smartest guys in the world. And um, before he was that, before he took on that really big task and responsibility, he was a medical doctor. And he tells this story of how when he was 27 years old, um, as an atheist, right? He didn't believe in God at this point in his life. Um, he was working at, in North Carolina, I think it was like North Carolina State, um, Tar Heels. And um, so he was working at this hospital, right? And part of what he had to do was he had to work with the people who were dying. And this, for him, it just became this sort of thing where he would encounter these people who were dying and he would see their faith. Right? He would see that they still trusted God. And to him, like, this didn't make any sense. Um, it was like, why would these people continue to trust God? Um, can you go ahead and put up the, the quote up on the screen for me uh, from Francis Collins? So he says, if faith was a psychological crutch, it must be a very powerful one. If it was nothing more than the veneer of cultural tradition, so basically, like, if people were just Christians, because that's like a cultural thing, um, then he wonders, like, why were these people not shaking their fists at God and demanding their friends and family uh, to all this, demanding their friends and family uh, to all this talk about loving and benevolent supernatural power. So basically he's saying, like, if it's just a psychological crutch, at this point these people are dying, so why not just give it up? And that really sort of put him into shock. And he tells a story of how one day he was with this lady who he had gotten to know well over his time being her doctor. Uh, she would always talk to him about her faith. And one day, um, she just point blank asked him. He was like, what do you believe? And she, this lady was dying. She asked him, what do you believe? And I guess nobody has ever asked him that question at that point in his life. Um, and it kind of shook him. It's like, I've, he realized, it's like, I don't know what I believe. And this lady died. And when this lady died, he was just like completely shook. And that like put him on this trajectory of like thinking like, what do I believe? And he started investigating and, and looking into Christianity because so much of his, so many of his patients were, were Christians and uh, their faith was, even in, in the midst of death, their faith, faith was grounded in Christ. And uh, eventually Francis um, came to faith in Jesus. Like, one of the most brilliant scientists literally runs like all of health in this country is a Christian. The guy who mapped the human genome is a Christian, right? And this lady's faith and these other patients' faith spread to him, right? And now this guy, he runs this organization called BioLogos, which um, sort of bridges the gap trying to dispel the myth that science and religion are opposing things, right? So he's, he's passing on the faith and encouraging skeptics. Uh, and even the fact that somebody at that high of a position is a Christian, that itself is a testimony of his faith, right? But for us, our own faith can spread too. And it doesn't always have to be answered prayer. Like sometimes those prayers get answered, but even as, as the story of this lady shows, 
just standing in faith in the midst of that can be a testimony, can pass that faith on to others. So, um, three things, right? Um, Jesus doesn't want to leave us with our shallow faith, right? He wants us to have a confident faith. Uh, he wants us to have a faith that's, that's seeking after him and not just the things that he has to offer. And um, I know this has been a tough season for a lot of people, right? Um, all kinds of things, right? Uh, maybe you're having a hard time with sort of the, the lockdowns and the restrictions, and it's been really hard just being at home, um, being alone, well, not getting to see people until recently, right? That that might have been uh, emotionally hard, psychologically dis- um, distraught. You might be psychologically distraught because um, being with other human beings is such an important part of how God designed us and wired us. Um, you might be facing that. Maybe you have a loved one who has gotten sick recently uh, from COVID. Maybe you have uh, people that you know who've passed away, and, and that can be really hard, and, and that can create this sort of crisis of faith. Right? Or maybe sort of the political climate is creating this sort of crisis of faith where, um, where the anger, the division, um, the racism is, is just getting to you. Right? Or maybe what's harder for you is seeing these people who you know and you love, who um, you know they're Christians, but they're acting in such unchristian-like ways, and that's really sort of uh, shaking you, and, and you don't know what to deal with that, right? Um, and it's in those times of crisis, right? Whether it's uh, just being at home, whether it's health stuff, whether it's seeing Christians act in unchristian ways, like all of those things are kind of like what this dad felt, right? There's this crisis, like I don't know what to do. I have no other resort. I have no other options except just to like bring these things to Jesus. And that's what we're called to do, to bring these things to Jesus. Verse 54, it says, This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Why is it a sign about who Jesus is? Well, it's because Jesus meets us in the middle of crisis. Jesus meets us in the middle of crisis. That is who God is. That is what this sign is pointing to, that in the middle of your faith crisis, God is going to use that opportunity to grow your faith, right? But even more important than that, he's going to meet you in the middle of that thing. So um, today, I just want to pray for you guys um, that God would increase your faith. I think that's always a good thing to pray, that God would develop your faith, that he would take it from being shallow to being deep, to being confident in his promises, uh, to being missional. Um, and those are all good things. So let me go ahead and, uh, and pray for us. Father God, um, We thank you that you've given us signs about who Jesus is, um, signs about how Jesus loves us and cares for us, um, signs about how he meets us in the midst of our crises of faith. Lord, I pray uh, just for this group here, Lord, that um, you would increase their faith. Um, We know that faith is a supernatural gift, God, that we can't muster up faith on our own, that we can't create that, but that you give it to us by your spirit, Lord. So I pray Uh, that through your spirit, that you would give um, this group faith, that you would give them faith to believe um, that you can do all things, faith to believe that you can use them um, in contagious ways, not just with uh, COVID, but with their faith. Um, God, I pray that you would um, give them an unshakable faith in the midst of crisis and in the midst of pain, and that that faith would just be such an example to those around them, Lord, that, um, yeah, that at the end of the day, that their own faith would also be a sign 
that points to Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.